church we're in Luke chapter 1 this will be our second week in Luke uh, we looked at the first four verses a couple weeks ago and then we uh, had a um, Christmas message last week in Matthew but now we're back in Luke I don't know if I told you guys last time but maybe for those of you who weren't here Luke has 1151 verses in it it's the longest book in the New Testament so take heart We've got 1147 left after uh, after last time. So no, we'll be in Luke for a while, and uh, and there will be obviously even like today. I mean, there's going to be uh, larger sections we cover in the book of Luke. It's not quite like going through an epistle, but we will be in Luke for a while. So um, you know, I've been reading it, and it's just a uh, so many parts of Luke that I look forward to to going through as a church and. Really digging into the text and looking at the life of Christ. That's what you're doing when you go through a gospel. So the title of the message today, guys, is uh, God Breaks the Silence. As we're going to see, He's been silent for 400 years up to this point. So it's really a, uh, you know, really a turning point in in biblical history, in the history of our world, really. The fact that God really was silent. He hadn't spoken through the prophets, through an angel. Um, in 400 years, but we're going to see the very verse in, in Luke's account today where he breaks the silence. Really for just a few moments, because last time in verses 1-4, through four, we really just looked at the life of the man Luke, if you guys remember that. Because really, that, there's not a whole lot said about Luke. So, if you want to know a little bit about Luke, go back and listen to that message, because the rest of the time, he just picks up the narrative, and it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so really, he starts the, he starts the account, the, the narrative today in verse 5. But really kind of leading up to this point, uh, just a little bit about uh, the history of Israel up to this point. The, the faithful, the remnant in Israel had been waiting for the promised seed. Right? We talk about that a lot. The promised seed all the way back in Genesis 3 verse 15 that would come. That would... Uh, <clears throat> Ultimately, like Christ said, He would destroy the works of the devil. He would crush the serpent's head. And uh, this was the seed of the woman promised back in Genesis 3. You know, the, the same one through whom God promised Abraham that He would bless the nations. It's the same one, that promised seed. The same one who would be a king. He promised David He would always have a king reigning on His throne. Uh, whose throne would be established forever. This This king. And you know, we, we know that God gave kings uh, to the nation of Israel to rule over them. An example, and, um, and obviously He sent His prophets to prophesy about this coming one, but in, in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, for example, the prophets always preaching repentance to the nation of Israel to, to turn from their idolatry. He, uh, I, or Jeremiah says in chapter 23, verse 5, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, a righteous branch, and he will reign as king. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Again, it's, it's pointing. Pointing to this promised one that's coming. But don't you know that when you would, you can go back and read through like the, the, the book of Kings or Chronicles, when you see the life of these kings, what were most of these kings? They were mostly evil, wicked men. But don't you know the nation was saying, is this him? Is this him? Just to be... Just to be let down again. But that's, that's what the Old Testament was pointing towards, this promised one. 
the prophets pointed to him. And, and um, yeah, like I said, most of these kings were very ungodly. Very rarely you would find one that was righteous. And they would just lead the nation into further sin, which eventually led them into captivity. Uh, the northern kingdom going into Assyria, the southern kingdom Judah going into Babylon. And, uh, and so God, God eventually brought, they were, they were in uh, captivity in Babylon, and he, and he eventually brought several thousand back. I think the number was 50,000 that I read. <clears throat> back to the land and had the temple rebuilt and sacrifices reinstated. But guess what? They eventually fell into even deeper sin, the nation of Israel. Idolatry, sin, rebellion. And so that really leads up to that, that, that period in between the Old Testament and the, New, and the New where there's 400 years of silence. God did not speak. No angels, no prophets. And that, that's really what leads up to where we're at in, in verse 5 here. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, really continuing on in, the, in really the introduction part of the message, that first phrase, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. This is talking about Herod the Great, okay? He, he was known as, later to be known as Herod the Great, and he reigned. When it says in the days of, that's the days of his reign. 37 B.C. to 4 A.D. is the time that he reigned. He was the son of Antipater. So this is not Herod the Tetrarch. This is Herod that we read about. This Herod is the Herod that we read about in Matthew 2 while ago that Shiloh read to us. That's this Herod, Herod the Great. Herod the Tetrarch, his son, we'll see him later in the Gospel of Luke. Um... Just, and, and this is just a real brief kind of history of Herod and, and really the, the, the political landscape of that time. He was nominated king of Judea by the Roman Senate in 40 B.C. And Herod was not a Jew, but he was an Edomian, which is an Edomite. He was a true Edomite. Which we know that the Edomites were uh, enemies of the Jews in the Old Testament. But Herod married a Jew... A Jewish lady from a wealthy family during that intertestamental period. Now Herod had many strengths about him. He had many diplomatic, oratorical, he was a great speaker, uh, administrative skills that he used to help increase his standing with the Jews. So many of the Jews kind of had a somewhat of an affection towards Herod. He would help the poor. Herod would help the poor. He even lowered taxes during a famine during that time in 25 B.C. Man, he sounds like a good guy, doesn't he? He was so popular with some of the Jews that they formed a pro-Herod party called the Herodians. Recognize that name in the Gospels? The Herodians. He was also well known for, probably the most well known Herod for rebuilding the temple. Now, It says he rebuilt it. He didn't actually rebuild it. He just... He just uh, enhanced it. He renovated it. He made it. He, he he added to it to try to make the temple like the original one. But that's what he's known for. This Herod. But he had a dark side. Herod, we read about it in Matthew chapter two a while ago. Herod had a dark side. He was he was an evil man. He was what you call a true tyrant. He was he was um, a very jealous man, very paranoid man. It reminds me of Herod when we talked about Herod when we did. First Peter a year or two ago. Very paranoid. 
Herod murdered his own wife, murdered her brother and her mother, and had and even several of his own sons. That's kind of who this Herod is. And in Matthew chapter 2, which we read earlier in, in the Scripture reading, which is the right here in, the, in this text and in Matthew 2, is the only two places this Herod the Great is mentioned in the Scriptures. We read of him having all of the male babies, uh, male babies two and under, which we just read about, who lived in Bethlehem and, and that surrounding vicinity. And what, what motivated the slaughter? We've got we to ask ourselves. What, what motivated the slaughter of these male babies two and under? Remember what the Magi from the east said? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And so whether he said, they said that directly to him, but he, he heard that question and that, and that produced that, that jealousy rose up, right? Because he's the king of the Jews. And how dare somebody dare to be king of the Jews? So he just had all the babies murdered. And what do we see? The seed of the serpent. All the way back in the garden. The seed of the serpent trying to destroy the seed of the woman. And so that's um, that's what brings us up to this point. That's kind of where we're at in history. This is so so right here where we're at, this is toward the end of his of the reign of Herod's reign. And so that's a little bit of background. You could go a lot deeper if you like, but uh Kind of sets it up where we're at. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. And now we're going to get into this text here. Really verses 5 through 14. Um, the truth I would like you guys to take today from the text is this. And all this is on the back of your bulletin. Uh, the outline if you like taking notes or if you just want something to follow along. The truth that I would like you to take, that I think we can take, that we can apply to our own lives is this. The Lord uses your everyday obedience, guys. And, and, I, and I, uh, I thought about that. I think about these real carefully when I write them out. It's not just your obedience, but your everyday obedience. Okay, Common obedience. The Lord uses your everyday obedience, your suffering, and your prayers to accomplish His purposes. We're going to see that in the text. You know, God has purposes, right? That He has ordained from the, end, from the beginning. But He uses our lives to accomplish those things. So that's where I would hope that the Lord would speak to you today, that you would see that in this text. And so we've got three points today. The first one is this. We're going to see in verses 5-7, through seven, we're going to see God's righteous couple. God's righteous couple in verses 5-7. through seven. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So first of all, we're going to, see the, uh, we're going to look at God's righteous couple. And just a little bit about each one of them real quickly. Zacharias, his name means Yahweh has remembered, which is very... A very neat thing when we see what happens in this text and how God is going to answer the prayers of Zacharias. But just the fact that his name means Yahweh has remembered. He was a priest. Um, you can see right there in verse, um, yeah, verse five, he was a, he, that, that he was a priest. Um, and then it's a little bit down, a little lower. We're going to see that he was a part of a certain division. Okay. So at the time of David in the Old Testament, there were so many priests in the land. 
The nation of Israel had grown so large, there were so many priests that David divided them up into divisions. The family of the priests were arranged by David into 24 divisions. And it says here he was the, of, the, of the, uh, the division of Abijah, and that, that was number 8. That was group number 8. So there, there were only four divisions that returned from Babylon from captivity, but these four were redivided into 24 and given the old names. And so Elizabeth, who he married, her name means my God is an oath. The, the names of, in the Old Testament, they always meant something significant. Her name meant my God is an oath. And so it was a great blessing for a priest to marry a woman of priestly stock. That wasn't a requirement of the law. The, the only requirement for a priest was that he married an Israelite virgin. So it was like a double blessing. He was, he was marrying a, uh, a godly woman and who was a you know, uh, part of a, a priestly family. And so during so much, there was so much darkness and so much hypocrisy within the nation of that time, this would have been a beautiful picture, this godly couple. You could just think of them as a, uh, as a small town pastor and his wife, just, just obeying the Lord, faithfully serving the Lord together amidst really an apostate nation. That's really kind of the picture of this couple. But let's, let's look at this. <clears throat> God's righteous couple. First, we're going to see their godly character in verse 6. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So they were, they were godly. This couple was godly. And church, just understand, these were not well-known, powerful people. Okay, This was just a, a quiet, humble, godly marriage. They were serving the Lord together. They weren't well-known. They weren't powerful people. And so I would just like to encourage you with that, guys. To be great in the sight of God does not mean to be great in the sight of man. I hope you guys um, realize that, that trying to make a name for yourself, is, that's not what God's interested in, right? Alright, Rocky? He just wants us to be faithful to Him. That's what we see with this couple. They weren't perfect. It says, it says but they were both righteous in the sight of God. That's what matters. And, and what that's telling us, guys, is we know that nobody is righteous in the sight of God except through imputed righteousness. So these were believers, right? They were, they were righteous in the sight of God. They, they, they put faith in the one true God and His promises. So these, these were righteous people who walked blamelessly in the commandments of the Lord. In other words, they, yes, they kept the requirements of the law, even the ceremonial aspects of the law being an Israelite, but they did it with sincerity. They did it with sincerity of heart. They were blameless. That just means above reproach. These were godly people. That's the first thing we see about, about them. And so when your life is over, beloved, okay, we're all going to come to that time when, when people are standing at our, at our funeral and they're remembering us. What do you want to be remembered for? Do you want to have a great name? You want to be remembered for your greatness, for, for your riches, for, or do you just want to be remembered for being righteous, for being faithful? As the people of God, I would hope that that's what we would all, that we wouldn't want a name for ourselves, but we would want to be described, that's somebody who loved the Lord, and you can see it in His life. That's who these people were. They were righteous. And we know that any time the Bible speaks of a person being righteous, there's a, there's a double effect to that. 
We're righteous in, the, in our standing before God through, through the imputed righteousness of Christ, but that's going to be lived out in our life because of the, uh, the new birth. And so that's the first thing we see, this, that, that Zacharias and Elizabeth are just godly people. They're not powerful people, but they're faithful. Secondly, we see their suffering in verse 7. It says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. This word barrenness, guys, that meant a lot during the Old Testament, Israel, and that culture. Barrenness for a woman was about the worst thing that could happen. It was. It was. It was a, in Israel, it was, a, it was a reproach to be barren. Sadly, sadly so. Even considered a, a, a reproach or a disgrace. Even a punishment from God. That's the way the culture viewed it. Remember the friends of Job? Well, what kind of, what kind of evil and wicked sin have you been involved in, Job, or you wouldn't be suffering? It was that kind of thing. You're barren? Falsely, I will say falsely, it was, it was bad theology. But that's what the culture thought. To be barren was to, was to be a disgrace. To be punished. You're punished for some reason. because you're, you're, It's a punishment because um, you're obviously not a godly person. We already read how in God's eyes they were righteous. But in many of the people's eyes they weren't. Can you imagine living with that? Living with that. Um, and, and you can see Old Testament examples of that in the Old Testament. You think of Hagar, how she had contempt for Sarai because she couldn't give Abram a son. In 1 Samuel 1.6, Hannah and uh, Penina, I think that's how you pronounce the name, they were both wives of a man named Elkanah. Elkanah. And Penina would, would provoke Hannah bitterly and even irritate her. Why? Because the Lord had closed her womb. So, so it would persecute her because the Lord had closed her womb. So this was a, it was a reproach in Old Testament Israel. Now Hannah did later conceive and give birth to Samuel, much like we're going to see in Elizabeth's case. But this is the stigma that they had to live with. To be barren was a stigma. It was a reproach. You can see some of it in verse 25 in this chapter. You can see it in, in, um, in Elizabeth's. This is after she had conceived. In verse 25 in chapter 1 it says, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when He looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So it was really, a, really an unfortunate thing to, uh, to be thought of as a reproach just because you were unable to conceive. But that's what they had to deal with. That was a lot of suffering. Not only for her, but for Zacharias to walk with her and to see his wife continually for years. A couple that's just faithful to the Lord. But to be lied about. To be slandered. This would have been horrendous suffering for both of these. For Elizabeth and Zacharias. You know, it's hard enough. It would have been hard enough. It would have been hard enough with the desire to conceive a child like every most women want. We, we know people in our church, right? We know people that we love. We, we've all known people. It's hard enough when you desire to conceive. And, and for whatever reason, the, in the purposes of God, He just has not given that desire. But to have these things on top of it, 
to be accused of being of living in sin. Think of the suffering that they would have walked with, both of them. The text is telling us she had been barren all these years, and now they're at the age where they're way past. Where they're way past. And that's going to come, that's going to be significant when we get towards the end of this message when the angel answers. So, so the context is, is they were barren, and now they're they're even way past the age of even conceiving. Beloved, but what do we see? What do we see? And this is what I want all of us to see. What do we see and what can we learn? They were faithful to the Lord amidst all the suffering, amidst all the slander, amidst the, amidst the Lord not answering their prayers, their, their, their desires. We see them being faithful. They're faithful to the Lord. What we can learn through this is being righteous. Being righteous, being obedient to God does not exempt us from suffering and trials. That's what we can all learn from this. And we all face trials. We all face unanswered prayers. We all face unexpected sickness, unexpected illness, unexpected financial setbacks, unexpected... uh, Trials within our relationships, within our children. But we see this couple being faithful. They were faithful. What do trials do to us? These are questions we can ask. Ask ourselves. Questions you need to ask yourself. When you go through trials. Difficult trials, beloved. Difficult trials. I mean, I know of many in this room... Difficult trials that you're going through. Suffering that you're going through. Do you draw near to God? That's the purpose of... One of the purposes of trials in our lives from our, from our Heavenly Father. Does it draw you near to God? What we don't see in this text with this godly couple, we don't see them being angry at God. We see them being described as righteous and walking blamelessly admits this reproach admits this unanswered prayer does it increase your prayer your prayer life and I'm not trying to add any shame to your life if it doesn't but just to encourage you that that's why God places trials in our life to draw us near to him Another thing trials can do, it can give you sympathy towards others when you go through trials. And then when you see others going through similar trials. Or maybe they're not similar trials, but just trials and suffering. Beloved, this is, this is God's way of, of, of teaching us and sanctifying us to be sympathetic, to be compassionate to others when we see them hurting. When we go through trials... I can speak I can speak for me and my wife. We've raised five kids. And if they all turned out just very peachy and exactly like we wanted, we'd be very prideful. But God is through through things that we didn't ask for. 
it's allowed and will allow, I am very confident, us to sympathize with those who maybe have difficulty with raising children. That's just one of many examples. Trials are meant to teach us. They're meant to draw, they're meant to draw us near to Christ, not push us back. So can I encourage you with that? Draw near to Christ. Draw near to Him. He hears your prayers. He is at work when we are praying, whether we realize it or not. He is at work in us, sanctifying us. And I think the greatest question you and I can ask when facing trials, really the song we sang is, how can I glorify Christ through this? Not, not God, why me? I'm not saying those aren't natural things to say through the process, but don't stay there. Lord, I don't understand. I, I don't understand. Can I just share something personal with you? And I wasn't even planning on saying this, but uh, my, my prayer for our church is, Lord, grow us. You, you, your game plan, for whatever lack of a better phrase, in your word is very clear. Go out and make disciples, right? We do that through proclamation of the gospel. Teaching them to observe all things, right? Baptizing them, the disciples, and then teaching them. That's my heart. And so, so sometimes there is a, in my honest emotions, Lord, that's what we're trying to do. And so whatever it is, the trial you're in, guys, take it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. Cling close to Him. Hold on to Him tightly. He loves you. You're His child. And He will change you in the course of it. So we see their suffering, guys. Suffering is part of the Christian life and it's meant to draw us, draw us near to God, okay? We see God's chosen priest, secondly. God's chosen priest in verses 8-10. through 10. Now it happened that while He was performing His priestly service before God in the appointed order of His division, according to the custom of the priestly office, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. First of all, what we see uh, are two uh, sub-points. Is we see, first of all, that it's a privilege to be a priest. It's a privilege for Zacharias. Uh, twice a year, for one week, each division, there's 24 divisions, each division of priests was on duty in the temple. So that's the setting here. He's in the temple. Um, and it was a privilege of a lifetime to be chosen by Lot. The text says he was chosen by Lot to burn incense in the holy place. This was a privilege of a lifetime that he would get one time. And so twice a day, twice a day, once in the morning and once late in the afternoon, uh, they, would, they would have these priests go in and burn incense in the holy place. And so... His was probably in the afternoon because of the indication of a larger crowd in verse 10. The priests kept the incense in the temple burning constantly. Remember, there were thousands of priests and they would keep the incense in the temple burning constantly in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And so, beloved, this is a simple point I want you to see is what a privilege it is for Zacharias to serve the Lord. And he did it in verse 8. It says he, it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God. He did this before the Lord. And what a privilege this was for him. And so 
bringing it down to us, guys, do you understand what a privilege it is to serve the Lord? Do you, do you, do you take that for granted? Or do you understand that, first of all, what a privilege it is to know the Lord, right? God did not have to send His Son into the world. He did not have to open our blind eyes, but He did. And so what a privilege it is that you and I, once enemies of God, now have fellowship with God. But it's also a privilege to serve the Lord. I want you to understand the privilege that you have been given, guys. He was given a privilege to serve in the presence of God that you and I have also. Listen to 1 Peter 2 verse 5 that we, that we looked at, I don't know, a, couple, a year or two ago. Peter says, again, he's writing to believers in that area of the world, Asia Minor. He says, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. That's the Christian life. To offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Your sacrifices, which the Bible calls spiritual sacrifices, guys, they're acceptable to God, to a holy God, through Jesus Christ. What a great privilege this is. Did you know that when you serve the Lord, when you serve the Lord with a sincere heart, a sincere heart in the power of the Holy Spirit, and this could be a myriad of things, how we serve the Lord in in the Christian life. This is not talking about just serving the Lord because you got to preach to thousands of people. That is just one way that a person can serve the Lord. But you offer up spiritual sacrifices when you're offering up to God sincerely. It could be something simply as, as simple as sharing, being kind to somebody, sharing your resources with somebody, sharing how God has blessed you and sharing that with others. Being generous. God wants His people to be generous in the name of Christ. To be kind. To be generous not only with your finances, but with your time. When you sacrifice time for others. Your resources. All of these are examples of offering up spiritual sacrifices. How about teaching others about Christ? Did you know all of you guys have been called to be a teacher in some capacity? We're all to... God saves, and then we're to disciple others. We've all got somebody in our life that doesn't know as much as we do. Maybe we're a little further along in the Christian faith. You're offering up spiritual sacrifices to the Lord when you take somebody and just teach them the truth about the Word of God. Sharing the Gospel with somebody. You're offering up spiritual sacrifices. What a great privilege we have as a Christian. Don't take that for granted. Don't think God can't use me. No, you are one of God's living stones in the household of God. And He wants to use you. He desires to use you. And, and, and your, your spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God because of Christ. Not because of you. Not because of me. But because of Christ. You know, when you praise God from the heart, whether it be privately or when we gather together, and you praise Him from the heart, That is a spiritual sacrifice that God receives. When you seek Him in prayer, and beloved, can I encourage you to seek the Lord in prayer daily? Set aside time. Intentional time. I'm learning this. Oh, what God does in our hearts when we seek Him. 
Sometimes you can even forget about what you're asking Him for because God just draws you into His presence and warms your heart. But you're offering up spiritual sacrifices when you seek Him in prayer. When you seek Him in His Word, you're offering up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And I think really just when we learn to become a servant to others. Think of who it was that came to this earth that we looked at last week. Right? The Son. You should call His name Jesus. This was the King of glory and He came, right? Not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. And He is our example. We are to give our lives up. Now it doesn't always mean that we give our physical lives up in death. No, that's not what it means, but just sacrificing our time. Sacrificing comforts to, to minister to other people. It's a privilege to serve the Lord, beloved. These are just a few I can think of off the top of my head. The different ways that we serve the Lord. The way I serve the Lord and the way you serve the Lord is not going to look exactly the same. That's not the point. But we're all called to be servants. Right? We're to be servants. We're to put others first. And we're to point them to Christ. And so you are, you are, you are privileged, beloved, to know Him, first of all, and to serve Him. Just like, just like Zacharias was privileged in his duty to the Lord. Secondly, we're going to see that this was a reminder for the people. God's chosen priest was a reminder for the people. In verse 10, look at verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So when the priest would go into the holy place and burn incense, according to the law, a bell would, be, would ring giving notice to the people who were outside in the courtyard of the temple that it was the hour of prayer. That's what was going on here. That it was the hour of prayer. So what was Zacharias doing? Or what was the priest doing? This is what he was doing, beloved. It was a reminder for the people. He was reminding the people by the priest going in and offering burnt incense. He was reminding the people that the sweet aroma of their prayers... Don't send up to heaven except through the sacrifice of a mediator. It was a reminder to the people that they needed a mediator. What a privilege for him to be acting as a mediator between a holy God and the people of Israel. But that's what it was a picture of. So beloved, may you and I be reminded, just like these people were reminded, that we have access to God there's only one reason why you and I have access to God. And that is through the mediator of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the, and, and that's what He was a picture of. The only reason you and I can approach the throne of God, the Holy of Holies, and have access to God in prayer that we take, it, that we take for granted every day is because we have been given a mediator. There's only one mediator between God and men. It's not Mary. And it's not Muhammad or anybody else. It is Jesus Christ. He is our mediator. Do you understand the, 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 the uh, implications of having a mediator? He reconciled us to God. You and I were at enmity with God along with every fallen son and daughter of Adam who are still in Adam, who are still in their sins. They are separated from God. Enemies of God, whether they realize it or not. 
Hostility towards God and hostility from God towards them. But Jesus stepped in because He was fully God and fully man. He was the mediator. Satisfying the wrath of God on the cross so that that wrath could be turned away from this one individual who puts their faith in Christ. Jesus bore God's wrath in His body on the tree as the man, as the God-man, first of all, fulfilling the law by obeying it. And then taking the curse of the law upon Himself. He he has become our one and only mediator. So that's what this reminds us of. As we talk about prayer, as we're talking about going into the throne room of grace, the holy of holies, and crying out our hearts to God, and God really does hear us. He really does hear you if you're a child of God. The prayer of a righteous man or a righteous woman is powerful, James tells us. God accomplishes His purposes partly through the prayers of His people. And it's only because we have a mediator, beloved. Oh, don't take that for granted. Don't take it for granted what a privilege you have to serve Christ and what a privilege you have to come to His presence. Just think if Christ hadn't come. And we're born in sin. We're dead in sin. We're hopeless. We never have access to God. And then He judges us for our sins. And He would do that which is just and right. Oh, but praise God for His mercy. That He has sent His Son. shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. So we looked at God's righteous couple, their godly character, their suffering. God's chosen priest, Zacharias. His privilege of serving the Lord. You and I have a privilege to serve the Lord. He, the people were reminded that they need a mediator. You and I are reminded that we need a mediator. I hope you guys don't ever take that for granted. And then lastly, we're going to see God's holy messenger. We're going to see God's silence finally broken after 400 years. In verses 11-14, through 14, God's holy messenger. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. So first of all, in verse 11, just God's, God's holy... Uh, God's holy messenger, real quickly. It's Gabriel. Down in verse 19, he identifies himself. This is the angel Gabriel. Think about this time, guys, in, 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 in biblical history. We see this angel appearing to Zacharias. Never in the time, never has there been a time up to this point where there's so much talk of angels appearing than at the time of the Incarnation and the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. God coming to this earth and walking amongst His people and ministering. We see the, the ministries of the angels like never before. And what, what were some of the things that the angels did? They announced His coming. We read about that. They announced His coming. They proclaimed His birth. They rejoiced when He appeared. Can you imagine? The thoughts in these angels' minds, being with God from the very beginning and seeing the second person of the Trinity come into the world. Oh, they rejoiced when He appeared. 
And what were they saying, guys? He's not one of us. He's not one of us. This is not an angel, but the Lord, Yahweh. Man, there's some cultic groups that could do well to learn that. This is not an angel. This is not Michael the archangel like our Jehovah's Witness friends say. No, the angel said, worship Him. Worship Him. What do the angels do? The angels don't want worship. The angels point people, no, don't worship Me. Worship the Lord. The angels rejoice when how many sinners repent? Just one. Man, if we want to give heaven a party... Preach the Gospel. When people repent, heaven rejoices. The angels rejoice when one sinner repents. Angels minister to God's people. Did you know that? They minister to those who will inherit salvation. I think it was, uh, it was last week when we were talking about, about the demonic world knowing who Jesus is, right? I mean, they, they see Him and they say, immediately they say, oh, Holy One, Son of God, don't send us to the pit. And remember we talked about that last week about how the world that you and I cannot see is so much more real than the world we live in. Angels and fallen angels, they're all around us. But the holy angels, God has sent to minister to God's people. They've ministered us in ways we don't even know. And that's what we see going on in this text. Beloved, they are never to be worshipped. Angels are never to be worshipped. And so God breaks His silence in verse 13 after 400 years via an angel. That's what we see in this text. But first, before we get to that, let's look at, let's look at um, Zechariah's reaction to seeing this angel in verse 12. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. He was troubled and fear gripped him. Is this not what we see in the text and the Scriptures? Anytime somebody has a vision or sees a a holy angel, this is the appropriate response because they're holy angels. Listen to to Daniel uh, chapter 8, verse 17. This is Daniel speaking. He says, So he, Gabriel, same angel, came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my feet. Face. Godly men, godly prophets, godly priests recognizing this is a holy angel. And it's a proper response to a certain extent. The angels always have to say, don't fear. But we see this. And these are friendly angels sent to God's people. Gabriel was just letting Daniel know in that text what's going to happen at the end. But we see Daniel's response, the same response. John's response in Revelation 22, 8 and 9, it says, I fell down and worshipped at the feet of the angel. So we see him falling down with kind of a reverence and fear. But then the angel said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. But we see men's reaction. And these are godly men when confronted with an angel. Of course, anytime we see people confronted with any, any type of vision of God, the holiness of God, Isaiah and Isaiah 6, what do we see? Just people falling on their face. We looked at last week when, when, when Jesus just demonstrated a little bit of His power and majesty and telling Peter, hey, cast your nets over here. And the nets filled up where the boats began to sink and Peter said, I am a sinful man. That's what the holiness of God does. Even with these holy angels. 
Beloved, think about this. Even the righteous, these righteous men are fearful of friendly angels. And they're fearful. What about the lost, beloved? What about the lost when they face the angels of God? Who the Scriptures seem to indicate that God will use the angels to execute the wicked, to cast them into hell. The, the, the fear that the lost need to have, that they don't have, until they're confronted with the truth. If these angels are so holy and to be feared, what must God be like? We see godly men being fearful of, a holy, of holy angels who are meant to minister to them. And we have, we have a world that is in defiance to God and that say things like, I'll tell God when I stand before Him what I think. Beloved, that's what, that's what biblical preaching is all about. That's what biblical evangelism is all, is all about. It's through communicating the truth of God's Word to try to wake people up. That no, you're not going to stand before God and tell Him off. You will have nothing to say on that day. You will fall on your face and bow the knee to your Creator. And so the, 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 the job of us as the as the as the Christian, as the evangelist, and all of us are, we've all been called to proclaim the gospel to people in our lives, okay? We have been given this commission through the truth of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to reach those, as, he said, as Jesus says in in, in John 4, my Father is seeking worshipers, those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And it's our job as the, as the church by proclaiming the truth that you are enemies of God and that the wages of your sin is death. And if you don't repent, you're going you're gonna to bow the knee and be cast into hell to, to put the fear of God in the people through the truth, rightly speaking. It's our job. There's more to the message than... Well, the message is not God loves you and have a, has a wonderful plan for your life. No, the message is God is holy and you are sinful and you're on your way to an eternal hell unless you turn to this Christ. And God can forgive you. God can reconcile you because of the mediator. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But people in their sin are so blind, they don't realize that. They don't believe that, do they, Rocky? They don't believe it. But we must proclaim the truth. And God will save His people from their sins. He will open their eyes. There was a time I told Trish, as we were talking about this the other day, I remember for a long period of my time until God opened my eyes, I didn't fear God at all. I had no fear of God. I did what I did. I was the captain of my own fate. I did it my way. I lived in all kinds of debauchery. I had no fear of God until God opened my eyes. And so we, we must be sympathetic. We must remember that men and women are in darkness. And we must not withhold the truth from them. They need the truth. They need the power of the Gospel to open their eyes. The power of the Holy Spirit. That it is a fearful thing if you die without Christ. We see that in this text. And lastly guys, we're going to see the angel's response. 
In verses 13 and 14, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Beloved, at this point, they were, they were elderly, they were old, they were past childbearing, past the age. And so I believe this prayer that he is saying, most commentators agree, that the prayer, when he, when he says in verse 13, your petition has been heard, has been his long-standing petition for, for a child. Now as a priest, he would have been praying for, uh, for the Messiah to come, for peace in Israel, these type of things. But I think the prayer that the angel is saying God has answered is this prayer that God has given you a son. These were old prayers probably. They were past the age. It doesn't say, but he may have not even been praying this for a while consistently because they were past the age of childbearing. May have, and I'm just speaking may have, okay? The text doesn't say. It may have, it may have been not even his prayer that day. But the point is this. His prayers and her prayers had not been forgotten. That's the point. They had not been forgotten. Have you ever considered, beloved, that God probably answers prayers that we forget we ever prayed? You ever think about that? When you go to the Lord and you seek the Lord, and maybe it's something you prayed about, truly seeking the Lord and God answers in a way that maybe you forgot you even prayed. The point is that their, their prayers had been lifted up to heaven and God heard them. That's what the angel is saying. Your prayers are not in vain, guys. Our prayers are not in vain. Even if we don't get the answer that we want. Our prayers are not in vain. But what we see in this text is pray and don't give up. If it's according to God's will, pray and don't give up. We're going to see some parables in this Gospel that talk about that same thing. That very thing. Praying and not giving up. Literally bugging God is what we see in the text. Do you have a lost family member maybe that you've been praying for? I do. Since the time I've been saved. We have some in our church who are praying for children to be born. And we're praying for children to be born to them. We have others in our church who are praying for children, their children to be born again. To be saved. We all have these desires in our hearts that are good. That are godly. Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep storming. Storming the throne room. Wrestling with God. Wrestle with Him if you know it's in God's will. Pray for that loved one. Don't ever stop. J.C. Rouse speaks to this. He says he, talking about God, knows the best time for people to be born. God knows best when people need to be born. And He also knows the best time for them to be born again. Those are prayers we can always pray, guys. 
The prayer of faith, guys. The prayer of faith, right? The, the honest, sincere prayer according to God's will. The prayer of faith is kept in heaven. That's what we see here. We may have prayed. We, have, we may have prayed for an individual when we were young. And maybe God doesn't answer to the prayer until we're dead and gone. But can I ask you a question? Is that okay with you? Is that okay if you never see God answer the prayer? Is that okay? Is, the, is, is just the fact that you're offering up spiritual sacrifices to God and being obedient to God and drawing near to God? Maybe He doesn't answer like you want, but what is He doing in the meantime in your life? And really, guys, in, in closing, I'm going to finish up. Coach Venables for OU. He, he, he has this phrase. And I really like Coach Venables. And, and I think he's going to turn it around. But he has this phrase that I love that they try to install in the players and it's enjoy the process. Embrace the process. The hard work that's going to get you to where your goals are. And can I say the same thing to you to encourage you? Whatever it is you're praying for, learn to embrace the process of prayer itself. Of being in the presence of God. I'm learning this more and more and more. Of offering up these spiritual sacrifices by, by, let's by, let's just say praying for your brothers and sisters in church. That's 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 one example. Did you know, guys? And I can tell you, whoever it is, when you pray for an individual, and I'm talking about really praying for them, where you're on your face before God and your your mind is engaged and you're thinking about them and you're thinking what's going on in their life and you're thinking you want God's best, you want God's blessing for this person. I can promise you that during that process, your heart is going to be warmed towards that person. You will have affection for this person just by taking them before the throne of grace. It will give affection for those whom you pray for. The process of prayer is the most important, guys. God changes us. God conforms us to His will. And so we see the Lord in verse 14. You will have joy and gladness, He tells Zacharias. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at His birth. And beloved, this is where we kind of bring it all home. We see the Lord using the prayers of Zacharias and Elizabeth to accomplish His redemptive purposes. The prayers of a simple, quiet, godly couple. I said earlier, He ordains the end from the beginning, right? He's sovereign. He's already ordained it. He's ordained everything. He has decreed it. You can't wrestle against that. That's the truth. The text says it. God is sovereign. He has ordained the end from the beginning, but He also ordains the means. What did we read about in, in, in um, Malachi earlier in our Scripture reading? It was in Malachi 3 verse 1 that, that it's prophesying that He's going to send a promised messenger who's going to come before the Messiah. John the Baptist. And what do we see in this text that we looked at today? God telling Joseph, or the angel telling Joseph, your petitions have been heard for a son. And guess who the son is going to be? The messenger that God promised to send to usher in the Messiah. 
But yet he's using the prayers of this godly people from a quiet community, this godly priest and his wife who'd been faithfully praying for a, for a child. And the, and the angel comes and says, your petition's been heard. And God's going to send John the Baptist into the world. Beloved, have you ever thought about God may use your obedience? He may use your obedience. Maybe you witness to one person that nobody knows about and that nobody ever knows about that you're just being faithful to the Lord. Maybe it's you give them a tract. And God raises up this person, saves this person, and ministers to thousands. That's what we see here. God's redemptive purposes. What does this tell us? Be faithful where God has you. That's what it tells us. Be faithful in your obedience. Be faithful even in your suffering. Keep being faithful. And be faithful in your prayer life, beloved. Obviously, John, that last phrase of that last text, he's going to bring joy and gladness. He says, many will rejoice at his birth. You can see that in verse 16. And he, John, will will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. So he's going to bless many. He's going to answer the prayer. So beloved, be faithful. Okay, Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep seeking the Lord. Give God the glory amidst your suffering, amidst your trials. Ask the question, Lord, how can I glorify you in this? That's the question we need to ask. And just remember guys, the Lord will use your everyday obedience. Not, not, your, not your grand obedience that everybody can see. Your everyday obedience to the Lord. The Lord will use your everyday obedience. He will use your suffering. And He will use your prayers to accomplish His purposes. Amen? Take that home with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the reminders in Your Word, God, that we see You accomplishing Your purposes, God, Your redemptive purposes through the means of, of, of common people, God. Common people who love You, who are obedient to You. And Lord, I just pray that, that Your church will be encouraged with that, God, that even amidst their suffering, their tears, Father, we all shed tears, God, for unanswered prayers, unmet desires, uh, slander, persecution, sickness, financial difficulties, God, and on and on. Lord, I, I pray, Father, that your that your people will be encouraged, God, that that you're at work even during these times. Lord, that that we can all use our suffering God that you, uh, that you bring into our lives to glorify You. I just pray that You would speak to each individual person. Lord, through the, through the work of Your Holy Spirit, God, and, and just apply this, these truths to their hearts. Father, we love You, and we thank You for Your Son. In Jesus' name, Amen.